How do we make sure as we attract all of that exciting opportunity that we are not leaving people behind? How do we make sure that when we say 100% clean energy for the city of Atlanta, that it means 100% of Atlantans? Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm Deborah Channel, Editorial and Research Director here at Smart Energy Decisions, and your new host of Smart Energy Voices podcast. We love to feature the important work being done by municipalities who are taking on the challenge of sustainability, often from very personal motivations. And today we're going to be sharing a keynote from our recent Net Zero Forum by Chandra Farley, Chief Sustainability Officer of the City of Atlanta. She's talking about viewing sustainability through a lens of environmental justice, as well as the importance of public-private partnerships and the value of positive pressure. So here's Chandra. My name is Chandra Farley, and I'm the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Atlanta, the ATL, as we lovingly call it. So I was hoping it might be a little bit warmer in San Antonio than it is in Atlanta, but not yet. It's really, really beautiful here. As I get started and go through this conversation today, I'll talk about the Mayor's Office of Sustainability and Resilience. I know we've got some other city folks in the room. I was glad to meet my Phoenix colleague here today and also talk about myself a little bit in a way to frame why environmental justice has been a baseline for all of my work over the years. So Mayor Andre Dickens has a vision for the city of Atlanta that really talks about one safe city, safe, healthy, connected neighborhoods. And when I talk to him about that vision, I've said to him, you know, that really sounds to me like a vision for environmental justice. If you've partnered with environmental justice organizations or if you've looked at the definition of environmental justice, that's what it's all about. So as we were developing really a new charge for the Mayor's Office of Sustainability and Resilience, because in the city of Atlanta, while we have had a Office of Sustainability, Office of Resilience, back to a Division of Sustainability, and then just last year on my birthday, City Council finally codified the Mayor's Office of Sustainability and Resilience for the City of Atlanta. So that was very exciting and very important for our work. And you'll see here in this vision, this is straight from the intro of our resolution, we talk about science-based analysis, but always being community-informed. And personally, I feel like anytime I am talking about community-informed, anytime I am talking about community partnerships, which is definitely one of those P's in the P3, I am talking about a vision and a foundation for environmental justice. So these are my teammates in the Office of Sustainability and Resilience. We have a focus on clean energy. We have a focus on waste diversion, 
food waste recovery, which is really that team equal to the number of people within my office. And we actually have it set up where our director of urban agriculture and food systems has three or four people that sit in our department of city planning. And the reason that that's so important, and I'll talk about interdepartmental relationships as being key to one of those P3s, that gives us direct impact, that gives us direct access to the resources we really need to make those programs work, which is land, which is zoning, zoning for farmers markets, zoning for urban farms, zoning for community gardens. And then also with waste diversion, we have direct partnerships with Department of Public Works. That's where recycling takes place. That's where we have street fleet team who goes out to try to increase our recycling diversion. Those partnerships include with our Atlanta Housing Authority, which has a lot of our multifamily and really smaller mom and pop landlord size like duplexes and triplexes, but are critical to our ability to be able to meet our waste diversion goals. And then, of course, we have clean energy where city council adopted 100% clean energy for city of Atlanta by 2035. And the way we talk about that 100% clean energy for 100% of the people, because as we know, all of us in this room that have been working on clean energy, sustainability, climate resilience, when we're meeting those goals, we are leaving people behind. So that is another reason it is critical that the baseline for sustainability, the baseline for climate resilience, the baseline for clean renewable energy must have a foundation for environmental justice. Three things I want to highlight to be thinking about as I go through this talk today is really how we meet this moment. And what is that moment? We have just passed we, yes, because I know all of us who've been doing this work for a long time with the Biden-Harris administration, passing the bipartisan infrastructure laws, right? We've got the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. We've got the Inflation Reduction Act, many new programs, but some old programs that just haven't had dollars before. My first focus as an opportunity for that is around the Energy Efficiency Conservation Block Grants, because we've got about... Hmm, let's say 200 municipal buildings in the city of Atlanta. Those are our fire stations. Those are our police stations. Those are our recreation centers. Those are our Department of Watershed Management facilities. All of those buildings have to be in partnership with me. I have to be in partnership with them because within the Office of Sustainability and Resilience, we set policies, which I'll talk about, we set priorities, we can set targets, and we can set goals, but all of that gets actually operationalized through our departments. Department of Watershed Management, Department of Parks and Recreation, Fire and Rescue, Department of Enterprise Asset Management, which manages all of our buildings. So really talking about, again, sustainability, public-private partnerships, and this idea of positive pressure. I'm going to go back to go forward. Surprise, this is me, uh, circa late 70s. <laughs> and, and this is in the background, my hometown of Gallatin, Tennessee. 
It's a small town. It's about 40 minutes north of Nashville. I'm actually closer to the Kentucky state line than, than I am to Nashville. But this is how I got my start in sustainability. This is how I got my start in climate resilience. I didn't have the language for it then, but me and my next door neighbor in the summer, we used to walk around, pick up aluminum cans, and then we could take them down to the dump. And that's how we got candy money. The big thing for me was to be able to have my specially made tuna sandwich for field trips. Well, what happened with tuna? Dolphins were getting caught in the tuna nets. Learned about that in school, came home. No way, mama, no more tuna, right? Then the ozone layer. Oh my goodness, the hairspray, the aerosol hairspray. Came home, no more hairspray, mama. We had to use the spritz kind, which quite frankly was never as good. But all of these things were sustainability. All of these things were early conversations about how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. One of the first projects I remember in high school was about the greenhouse gas effect. And my daddy had helped me sort of fashion a greenhouse out of a cardboard box, like with saran wrap on the top. And we also had a restaurant. And my great-grandparents had a garden. Depending on what season it was and depending what was growing in the garden, sometimes that informed our menu at the restaurant. And one of my first jobs was to follow the waitresses around, scrape the food off into a bucket. And my cousins who had a farm north of town, they would come in, get it, feed the pigs. All of this is sustainability. We didn't call it farm to table back then. You grow the food, you eat the food. Right. So I share this because that was really how I moved into sustainability. And it was really through buildings. So my background's in buildings and also growing up in Gallatin. I was raised by my grandparents. And so being black in the South, they remember not being able to vote. They went to segregated schools. Those schools were later my elementary schools. And on the walls of our restaurant, were these huge, like three foot by four foot pictures of their classes. Because even, um, although it was much later than a lot of other places, <laughs> when Gallatin finally integrated its schools, my grandparents and their friends and their people went to school with probably still to this day, still have reunions for Union High School. So I had all of this being around outside, gardens, learning about greenhouse gas effect, but also having this really strong community, civil rights, social justice. People in my family are at church. When they were run for office, sometimes they would use the restaurant for their campaign meetings. So all of these things growing up around that, not necessarily having particular language for it. So then when I went to architecture school, and then when I was working in interior design, so the housing market crashed and my job disappeared overnight, all of this was informing how I was moving forward to be able to make positive change, but understanding that there was a pressure that always needed to be applied for a social justice frame, for an environmental justice frame. These are a lot of plans that have been developed and passed in city of Atlanta. And I share this because as I was taking my journey from buildings, working in interior design. And it was actually when the housing market crashed, what did we do? What did the federal government do? 
American Recovery Reinvestment Act. So when people talk about right now, the bipartisan infrastructure law being this huge investment in climate, I'm thinking about, well, let's not forget what happened because I'm a product of ARA. The reason I got the job at South Face Energy Institute was not because of my background in buildings. It was because of all those years growing up in a restaurant because they were looking for someone to come into South Face, set up their facility rentals program, restart the tourist program. We did a lot of trainings, meetings, and events. I'm like, sure, yeah, I can do that. And because I had the background in buildings, I ended up on the facilities team. Then I ended up in a role developing and expanding our nonprofit energy and water efficiency programs called Grants to Green. And that was really the first time that I had this technical role that was really aligned completely with my groundings in environmental justice. Because what Grants to Green did was we provided technical assistance and funding to nonprofits to make energy and water efficiency upgrades. So we had funding from philanthropy, which funded our engineers to go out and do the building assessments. And then we had a community foundation partner, and they actually made the grants to the nonprofits to implement the list of recommendations. Proven theory being that the more money a nonprofit saves on operations, which includes utilities, the more money they have for programs and services. So we worked with boys and girls clubs. We saved the boys and girls club $12,000 a year, changing out their LED lighting. That's an additional 300 kids some of these clubs could serve every year. In some places, it was an additional two or three art teachers that they could hire for their summer programs. So again, this was really giving me an idea and helping me understand, wow, there are really some sectors, there are really some groups of people who are being left behind in this, not just the energy transition, but even just the basics like efficiency and weatherization, all the strategies that we know work. So we had really great partnerships with not just philanthropy, but our lighting contractors. Because in the metro Atlanta area, you have big lighting contractors and they would serve the metro Atlanta area. But when we were going to rural southwest Georgia, rural southeast Georgia, we were running into a lot of contractors who hadn't been exposed to these technologies. They had never heard of a variable fan speed drive or installed certain kinds of ballast and, and lighting. And so we were able to actually, because we had such a strong partnership with our contractors in the metro Atlanta area, that they sometimes ended up mentoring a lot of the contractors and companies in these other places because we had one common accord that we could come together on, and that was supporting the community. And that meant delivering on environmental justice because not only were we reducing people's utility bills, which meant we were reducing greenhouse gas emissions, We were delivering direct financial benefit back into the community because they could do more programs and services. So all of this was a background to what was happening at City of Atlanta. I've only been in my chief sustainability officer role for six months, but I've been a partner to City of Atlanta 
and other local governments and municipalities across the state and the Southeast for over a decade. South Face Energy Institute was the technical assistance partner to the city of Atlanta on things like the Better Buildings Challenge, which many of you know, which was another um, initiative that came out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. The Power to Change Plan had a big focus on residential energy efficiency. Well, we hosted a lot of events at South Face for training. We had a training center. We built the Southeast Weatherization Training Center. So we had the city in there. We had residents in there. We had companies in there, Mitsubishi with their mini splits and lighting folks and, you know, acuity, all of these places all coming together. And then we went into Resilient Atlanta. And Resilient Atlanta really took us out of sort of just a energy efficiency, technical focus, but it is probably one of the best community-wide, community-full engagement processes that I've ever really been a part of at the city. We covered food, we covered youth programming, and we covered energy, we covered transportation. It was huge and far-reaching. And then as things move on, then it was time for Clean Energy Atlanta. How many cities have a commitment to 100% clean energy where you're from? We know that people, including Atlanta, were making these commitments, but nobody really had any idea how we were actually going to do that. But the goal was important because it's the goal that pushes us forward. It's the vision. Wow, we can really do something amazing. It's one of those big, hairy, audacious goals. And we are still working towards that. And our clean energy plan was probably the first time, although I felt like it was in the water with Resilient Atlanta and really always in the water um, because of the leadership we've had through the various sustainability directors or chief resilience officers or chief sustainability officers at the city, that this undercurrent of equity, this undercurrent of racial justice, this undercurrent of climate justice, understanding that climate justice and environmental justice is racial justice when we are talking about that. And how do we leverage our big push forward for new ideas, our big push forward for new investment? How do we make sure as we do that and we attract all of that exciting opportunity to the city of Atlanta that we make sure that we are not leaving people behind? Again, how do we really make sure that when we say 100% clean energy for the city of Atlanta, that it means 100% of Atlantans? Because what we know out of about 27 zip codes that make up the city of Atlanta, there are six who experience a higher energy burden than the other zip codes north of the city, the wider, wealthier zip codes, because if you've ever looked at a map of the city of Atlanta, it's pretty stark. About 90% of our black population is situated in one part of the city, and 90% of the job centers are situated north of the city. This is a transit equity issue. This is an economic equity issue, an economic development issue, because what we know is transportation, air pollution, electricity, these boundaries, right? They're, they're all over the place. So how do we make sure that we are addressing this comprehensively?
And who benefits? If we are always asking ourselves the question of who benefits and having a real conversation around who's missing from this table, who's missing from this room in the conversation, then we're able to really push forward in making sure our partnerships are as strong as possible because we have as many voices at the table to help us make the right decision. With our leadership, I wanted to share this because our mayor, Andre Dickens, is also chair of the Public-Private Partnerships Task Force of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He was also recently appointed to the steering committee for climate mayors. And this is critically important because I come from advocacy, as I've talked about, and now being in local government, I've got a whole new community of folks um, to to organize with and to advocate with, right? City of Atlanta has about 8,500 employees. Everybody there doesn't understand sustainability. Everybody there doesn't understand what climate resilience is. Everybody there doesn't understand what zero waste is. So my office is not only focused on continuing to push the work across our community partnerships, across our corporate partnerships. We've also got a lot of education and advocacy work to do just right in our departments, right? Just across those. And all of us are talking to different corporations about this, that, and the other and are very excited. But I think this is important also because when the mayors are talking to each other, those are their peers, right? I mean, who do we get our information from? Who do we trust? So then if the mayor has heard something, a U.S. Conference of Mayors event, um, our director of urban agriculture and food systems is on the food policy task force. Then when we come to him with things or we come to our city council with ideas and they have been a part of the National League of Cities partnership task force, the pump has been primed a little bit, right? It's like, like net zero. What? How are we going to do that? What are you talking about? And it's like, well, actually, Mayor Gallego has talked about this or, you know, other mayors. So that's really, really important. And particularly for an initiative that we have launched this year called the Year of the Youth. The mayor has declared this the Year of the Youth. And he is challenging our private companies across the city and across the region. He has challenged all of the departments to come up with very specific programming, specifically focused on youth. So I'm like, hey, we got that covered. We've had a sustainability ambassadors program that we deliver twice a year. We've got about 300 people who have come through that program over the last few years. We have a clean energy advisory board that was just relaunched, which is 25 leaders from technical assistance organizations, advocacy organizations all across the city coming together to make sure, again, that we are in partnership in making very real decisions that have a huge opportunity to not just reduce our emissions, but to create jobs and not just to create jobs, but to create new business development opportunities and economic development opportunities. So we're getting the full package, particularly by focusing on those three Ps. And this is how we do things like our Solar Atlanta program. Solar Atlanta is the largest municipal solar program in Georgia. Our friends at City of Savannah are catching up with us, and we are excited about that. 
But this program has allowed us to install solar on 21 of our facilities. This is the C.T. Martin Recreation Center. And one of the things that we know about solar, though, is what? If you don't know what's there, it's up on a roof. People can't see it. People don't really know. So we've started working on things like solar in your community. In the past, we've just set up tables where people come in. Hey, did you know this is up here? We can't really get them up on ladders for tours. But what we are trying to do, particularly this year, in conjunction with the mayor's event called Midnight Basketball. And this is a critical initiative. They don't really play at midnight. They play about seven or eight. But people from across the city, it's a whole league. And eight of these facilities where they play midnight basketball have solar on them. As we were talking about this, and I'm talking like to Parks and Recreation about it, or talking to the mayor about it, or talking to them, and they're like, wow, yeah, you know, we just didn't even think about that. So this year, what we're going to be intentional about is setting up resource tables, setting up opportunities, because this is um, also an initiative to help us with youth violence in the city, to bring those numbers down. And so as we're drawing people in for midnight basketball, there are resource tables set up. So we want to have resource tables set up to educate the community on solar and what the opportunities are in the city related to that, not just for their own homes or maybe their churches or where they work, but for the business opportunity, the opportunity to not have to worry about that utility bill. Our EPA ranking, we keep moving up in the rankings. As Lana, just this year, we were number three with our EPA ranking. We can't do that without our commercial facilities. Going after those goals, reporting their Energy Star scores. We do have a commercial benchmarking ordinance in the city. And one of the things that we will be focused on this year is really increasing compliance with that ordinance. Because what we know is not only is that helping us meet our climate action goals, not only is that helping us meet our clean energy goals, but that means we're bringing more people into the industry We're building more awareness about what these technologies are to make buildings more efficient, building automation systems. All of these opportunities and these ordinances are giving us a vehicle through these various public-private partnerships to advance our goals, but also increase our quality of life in the city. And this gives us a platform for that positive pressure that we talked about in the beginning. And I love when Deborah and I were talking about this on one of the first calls, because that's what it has to be. This isn't about somebody doing something wrong. We just don't know, right? I mean, we don't, don't know until we have a conversation about what an impact might be. And you may not know what an impact on somebody is until you talk to them about it. So one of the things we were able to do this year, along with four other municipalities across the state of Georgia, is intervene at our Public Service Commission's regulatory proceedings. Georgia is on a three-year cycle. So in 2022, it was our time to have the integrated resource plan proceeding in the first half of the year and then have the rate case in the second half of the year. So that was critically important for the local governments to come together in partnership to apply this positive pressure um, at our regulatory commission be in direct conversation with our utilities about not only what we needed to help our cities and municipalities meet these 100% clean energy for 100% of the people goals, but how do we make sure those things are happening at the same time? Because the more solar, 
we can put on a parks and recreation facility, the more solar we can put on a Department of Enterprise asset or Department of Watershed Management facility, the more opportunity we are creating for safe, healthy, connected communities within the city of Atlanta. Thank you, Chandra, for sharing your experience. I really love how your personal journey has led you to being a leader in the energy transition. We look forward to continuing to watch your work in Atlanta. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers all about it. To learn about how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, just click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition as part of this podcast, as well as on our website and at our events. And it's all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 